you are feeling suicidal, thinking about hurting yourself, or concerned that someone you know may be in danger of hurting himself or herself, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK, 1-800-273-8255. It is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and is staffed by certified crisis response professionals. Additionally, if someone you know is an abuser or expressing abusive behavior, contact the Center for Prevention of Abuse at 1-800-559-SAFE. That's 1-800-559-7233. Or visit centerforpreventionofabuse.org. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Wonderium, Mint Mobile, Quip, Simply Safe, Cerebral, Squarespace, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. I am God to the cells that compose me. That's another quote by Charles Fort, which sums up his perspective on reality. There is no beginning or end to things. There was only continuity for him. He would opine that science will metaphorically accept something like the definition of colors as red or yellow, but not orange, the mixture of the two. Philosophically, his point was that experiments are all designed to reinforce expected outcomes. Whatever the dominant paradigm is at the moment, that paradigm calls the shots on the acquisition, retention, and the restricted access to knowledge. Some folks have interpreted Fort's writings as an attack on science. Bob Rickard, the founder of 14 Times Magazine, posits in Chambers' Dictionary of the Unexplained that it was quite the opposite. Fort had compassion for scientists bound by the dogmatic restrictions of the scientific method when they were evaluating things that weren't yet understood. In his biography on Fort, Charles Fort, the man who invented the supernatural, Jim Steinmeier points out that Fort coined the word teleportation. The idea had been present in earlier works by author Edward Page Mitchell and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, but it had been referred to as disintegration, or it required a device called a telepomp to work. Fort first used the word teleportation in his book, Low, published in 1931. Mostly in this book, I shall specialize upon indications that there exists a transportary force that I shall call teleportation. I shall be accused of having assembled lies, yarns, hoaxes, and superstitions. To some degree, I think so, myself. To some degree, I do not. I offer the data. If there is teleportation, it is in two orders, or fields, electric and non-electric, or phenomena that occur during thunderstorms and phenomena that occur under a cloudless sky and in houses. In the hosts of stories that I have gathered, but with which I have not swapped this book, of showers of living things, the rarest of all statements is of injury to the fallen creatures. Then, from impressions that have arisen from other data, we think that the creatures may not have fallen all the way from the sky, but may have fallen from appearing points not high above the ground, or may have fallen a considerable distance under a counter-gravitational influence. These are notions of the spontaneous appearance of solid objects via unseen and unknown forces, and Fort was mocked regularly for positing these ideas. But now, now, things are different. Listen to this research article from IBM on something now known to the world as quantum teleportation. In 1993, an international group of six scientists, including IBM fellow Charles H. Bennett, confirmed the intuitions of the majority of science fiction writers by showing that perfect teleportation is indeed possible in principle, but only if the original is destroyed. 
In subsequent years, other scientists have demonstrated teleportation experimentally in a variety of systems, including single photons, coherent light fields, nuclear spins, and trapped ions. Teleportation promises to be quite useful as an information processing primitive, facilitating long-range quantum communication, perhaps ultimately leading to a quantum internet, and making it much easier to build a working quantum computer. But science fiction fans will be disappointed to learn that no one expects to be able to teleport people or other macroscopic objects in the foreseeable future for a variety of engineering reasons, even though it would not violate any fundamental law to do so. Well, would you look at that? 61 years after Charles Fort's death and 62 years after he coined the word teleportation, for which he was ruthlessly ridiculed by science fiction authors of the day, it's now a scientifically proven concept with an intriguing future. And on top of that, the word he coined is part of what the scientific community now calls the process. This would all suggest that maybe, just maybe, Charles Fort's approach to the evaluation of the unknown should not be restricted by the confirmation bias of the human mind when it is studied. Charles Fort was among the first, if not the first, to suggest that when it comes to anomalies, you must, to use an outdated expression, think outside the box. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Man is a fool. His soul is a swamp in a derby hat, and his intellect is a fetus in a frock coat. Ben Hecht paraphrased as he reflected on Charles Ford's three great Fortean laws after his death from Jim Steinmeier's biography on Ford. Join us tonight for the last part of our very special series on the supernatural father of our show, Charles Ford. And we're back. That we are, and it's great to be back. I've had a lot of fun with this two-parter on Charles Fort. I'm actually taken aback by how much yeah. I didn't know about him. Thanks to Jim Steinmeier, the author, I, I now feel like I have a pretty good understanding of the kind of person he was. And on top of that, I really wish I could have met him. It must have been amazing to interact with Charles Fort in person. I'm sure, unless he was really taciturn and quiet, maybe. I don't know what don't he was like as a was. person, but, but, yeah. but firstly... You're not going to ask about my my very strange and we're back? No, I, I just figured it was. Okay, yeah, okay. I know. I'm what just, were you doing there? Just old tiny voice. Like, uh, oh, like okay. if you read a lot of his, uh, his passages, his writing, it is that kind of ornate style that uh, was popular just after the turn of the century. Yes. And it seems very declarative. Like Teddy Roosevelt, like you'd be on top of a soapbox declaring these things. Like, some of these will be truth. Some of these will be ultra fabrications. And uh, you decide, idiot. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I, I can't. Uh, yeah, but I would have loved to have talked with a guy, no matter what he was like, just to get those stories, man. Like, what's the weirdest thing you've ever come across or this and that? And they did have salons where he would show up and, you know, that small group would talk. Yes. But he wasn't putting on a show. Right. From what I remember reading about him, you know. Uh, but, you know, even his best friend, Theodore Dreiser, said that in the 28 years that he knew him, he thought that they had maybe gotten together in person maybe just about 20 to 25 times. Yeah, he was reluctant to leave his house. I, You know, social anxiety and right, I right. think and uh, 
just agoraphobia, all that stuff. That's truly astonishing, really. They didn't have Zoom either, so yeah. that was a hindrance. And he uh, he also didn't want to leave Brooklyn and come into the city, which I know people like that to this day. <laughs> well, yeah. folks, we got a great show for you tonight. Just a couple of very quick housekeeping notes. Uh, firstly, we wanted to tell you about an amazing new podcast we just discovered called Cautionary Tales. Yeah, this is a great show. And if you like astonishing legends, you're going to love Cautionary Tales. It takes a look at tragic stories from throughout history from which we can all learn valuable lessons. It's hosted by best-selling author Tim Harford, and he digs out the morals and moments from the greatest mistakes, tragic catastrophes, and hilarious fiascos of the past. <laughs> yeah, you'll you'll have front row seat as an award-winning choreographer and a rock legend come dangerously close to opening the worst Broadway musical of all time. Notice the tiny change in a hotel's blueprints that resulted in tons of concrete, steel, and glass crashing down on guests and swelter as a deadly heat wave descends on Chicago, killing some residents, but oddly sparing their near neighbors. Some stories will delight you, others may scare you, but they'll all make you wiser. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts. Also, we'd like to welcome our sister show, The Midnight Library, back on the digital airwaves with season six, if you can believe that. And the first episode of that season drops at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Sunday, April 10th. Yeah, and a big congratulations to both Miranda Merrick and her dashing partner in crime, Mr. Darling, on the over 2.1 million visitors to the library since they started. Pretty amazing, huh? Yeah. Yeah, and it makes those who got lost or went missing uh, while visiting seem like a very small number indeed. Well, season six is starting out with what Ms. Merrick calls a journey of the mind. And apparently, she's calling for it to be enjoyed with headphones or earbuds. So a little word to the wise. There. Ooh, that does sound intriguing. And she's probably casting a spell. I just, if we know her. Yeah. <laughs> well, another quick news. We just posted the fifth episode of our Patreon-exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer. That's already over five hours of bonus content exclusive to Patreon, and on top of that, it's commercial-free. Yeah, and, and this show is not your parents' version of Astonishing Legends. I wrote that, and I don't know what it means, but it's a lot looser. <laughs> conversations, it? yeah. uh, it's topical, it's seat of the pants. In fact, it's safe to say that almost no cursory research is involved. You're making it sound blue, and is no research involved a good thing? You're, you're making uh, it sound well, like a good you know, thing. there's no shortage of folks telling us it's their favorite version of what we do yeah. now. <laughs> Go figure. We, we should have started with that kind of show first. Anyway, folks, if you want to hear Astonishing Legends, even on the dark weeks for the main show, which means basically year-round, head over to patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons get access to not only that bonus content, but commercial-free versions of the main show and other tasty media mm. morsels. That's mm -hmm. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Astonishing Legends. Yeah, and also find and subscribe to the Midnight Library wherever you get your podcasts, or just ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of the Midnight Library podcast. All right, we've got a really fascinating show for you tonight, so let's get to part two and the final part of our special series on Charles Fort, our supernatural father. So, of course, we're starting out tonight talking a little bit more about some of the finer points of his childhood. Right. Right. I thought, of course, linearly, when we started part one, it's like, yeah, you could do all of his childhood because it is a path to understanding who the man was and how he thought. So that's important, but it's also, it could have bogged it down, I thought, because you do want to get to, I know I did, like, well, what do you think about the weird stuff? Yeah. I don't care about the kicking the can crap and the playing the hoop down the street with, <laughs> with a stick. I want to get to uh, what he thought as an adult and when he started to really dive into this stuff. But you have to realize that the childhood stuff 
really laid the groundwork for what he did later and why he was interested in it, because it all has to do with personality. Even the average journalist wouldn't be this interested or this obsessed with this information as he was. And that's why we know about all these things, because he was so fastidious. He was a collector of info. All these things are important. So in light of that, we kind of broke up the two parts of his early childhood. And the first part was a lot of the facts and stuff. So we're going to come back at the beginning of part two here and lay the groundwork with some reminders. And so a little bit of time has passed. So we're going to refresh our memories with who these folks and players are, his beginnings, and also more detail on the anecdotes of his upbringing. So before we continue with Charles Fort's literary mm-hmm. career, let's back up a little bit. Let's press rewind and talk just a little bit more about his childhood because it really is really fascinating. And I think a lot of times in a case like this, where you have this story, you're, you're thinking, oh, I'm just interested. Uh, tell me about the part that we all know about. How, why did he write these books or whatever? Mm-hmm. But his childhood is the building blocks for what made him that way. Jim Steinmeier writes about it in such a fascinating and interesting way. He really paints a full picture of what Ford's childhood was like. And I really enjoyed reading it. I felt like I was there. I mean, I mean, his life story would make a great movie. I, I don't think it's right. been done, even on a small scale that I know of, but it would just be an awesome film. Well, he got all of that, of course, from an unpublished manuscript of which only parts survive called Many Parts. <laughs> many only parts some not parts surviving. of Many Parts exactly. are still around. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's where we get the story as told by Fort. Now, as we alluded to in part one, as he started to become a journalist, you start to question, uh, not that he can't be trusted, but that his writing style is starting to form where he is more enamored, maybe of the process and the happening of adventure than the details of the adventures themselves. Now, that might be hard to understand, but he's understanding processes and making connections to the world that is happening around him that he can't yet, as a young person, understand. That leads to a lifetime of curiosity and is eventual. I guess you could call it an obsession. I mean, it's, it's a to me, a very cool obsession. Yes. But he was a bit of an obsessive character. Yeah. He has anecdotes that he collected, bits of news. And again, he, he found these in newspapers, in scientific journals of the day. It's not all just weekly world news. So yeah. you can forget about that. And the things that he pointed out as not making sense Things like, okay, if it's raining frogs, it's always a report of mature frogs. So he said, like, if you're thinking that a whirlwind suddenly whipped up over the surface of a small farmer's pond and tadpoles were carried into the sky, okay, I'll buy into that. Yet, oh, I've read something is the tadpoles are up in the air so long that they, long enough that they turn into adult frogs. Yeah. You're starting to stretch it for me. Yeah. Uh, but that's what he noticed. It's like, okay, so we have this story, but what does it make sense about the stories that we just saw or I'm just collecting? When I read those over, there's always new bits that make you wonder about the the reality of these stories. And that's what's fun. So anyway, when we take a look at how he grew up, and of course, it's very formative, the experiences that he had, because the other thing about Ford is that he was rebellious. And for the rest of his life, he was rebelling against norms. And he will tell you that. That comes out in Book of the Damned. He's not buying the status quo, what just the authorities and science and uh, religious leaders and this and that and all the people who consider themselves and will tell you that they are authorities on everything in our reality are saying as explanation. Because as he said, like, there are no explanations. You get to an explanation or a conclusion and you just realize that another door is open. There's something else you have to solve that's unsolvable. 
So forget all that. And by the way, that's as true as, I mean, if you talk to anybody that does a paranormal podcast like we do, or Jim right. Harold or Connor Randall and the and the folks, uh, Greg and Dana Newkirk, mm-hmm. the Hellier, all of that, I think everyone to a person will tell you, just when you think you're getting close to the answer to one thing, you yeah. get many, many more questions. I've never met anybody that said, that's great. I figured it out. I'm happy. I went to the Sally house. You know what? Yeah. And this happened there <laughs> and I know what it was and I'm cool. It's, right. There's never any of that. There's always like, okay, now I have new questions that uh, that I didn't even think I would ever have. You know, it's like, yeah, you don't get any better answers the further and the longer you pursue this, but you do and can learn to ask better questions. So my point being is that all the stuff was formative, and as we talk about some of these anecdotes of him growing up, you see the rebellion, you see the questioning of authority. And the resistance, and I I wouldn't say disrespect, but he certainly, as we'll see, the authority figures in his early young life, them pounding their rules and ways into him didn't make him or his brothers respect them anymore. Yeah. It formed a callus and scar tissue on his belief system of sorts. So let's just do a little recap here. Starting off, we have uh, Charles, again, he was called Toddy. Hoy Fort. A lot of this he wrote about in a memoir about his childhood in Albany, which ended up in an unpublished manuscript called Many Parts. So growing up at times, he's curious. He's also filled with self-doubt. He's puzzled by the world around him and how processes work. Why do things happen the way they do? None of it's really explained. It's just like, well, that's the way it is, kid. Just suck it up and go with that. As a young boy, he thought Santa Claus coming down the chimney, that's impossible, right? I mean, I thought that as a kid. So, of course, my thinking is like, it's supernatural. He materializes. And the chimney is the route that he is able to take. It's an opening into the house, much like Close Encounters of the the Third Kind, where she has to shut the flu. Right. It's coming down that way. And uh, somehow the, the reindeer are levitating. I didn't really know so much about the reindeer, but I thought, like, there has to be a way that he can be in every house around the world at night the same time. It's got to be supernatural, right? So Ford's idea, though, was that, okay, that seems impossible for young kids, but it's such a beautiful idea that we can't give it up. Let's hold on to that, even though it doesn't make sense. He never committed to any one belief system when he was younger, but he obviously saw that things didn't make sense yeah. about the world around him. Right. Now, before Fort was bored, let's go way back to where it all started. How did he come to be named Charles Fort? Well, the name of the family actually was not Fort, but Liberté. Liberté. It's L-I-B-E-R-T-E. The records of Jan, J-A-N, Jan Liberté, he was of Dutch nationality, but ethnically may have been French. Right. That's what we found when we looked it up. That's what I thought. So that's where you get kind of an atypical Dutch name, Liberté. Of course, it sounds more French. Right. What the deal is, though, is that Jan Liberté was a Dutch settler. And in 1683, he purchases or comes to own some land on the shore of the Mohawk River, north of Albany, New York, near the town of Latham. Now, you asked me, what was there? Was it a full-on fort, a battlement? Is it a little town, a village? What was going on there? Well, this was a, you could call it a fort, I guess. And here I'm going to take a whack at this name and just sit back and wait for the emails. Canestigion, 
Canestigion. I'll just spell it, and then uh, we'll get letters from that little small part of uh, New York, upstate New York. C-A-N-A-S-T-I-G-I-O-N-E. This is a, a sod and log construction that was built to protect themselves from the French and the Native American Indians in the area who were aligned and in cahoots with the French and were attacking some of the settlers there. Right. Well, this actually went on to give the family their name because Jan Liberté became known as Jan Lafort, Jan Van Fort, or just John Fort. Yes. Here's an interesting section on him. from This is from wikitree.com. This is a genealogy page that... Um, that I sometimes get information from. And it says, uh, Jean Lafort, this is a biography on him. Jean Lafort, alias Liberté, was born in the quarter of Saint-Georges, Perigueux, or Dordogne, mm -hmm. province de Perigord, in southwestern France about 1650. Forgive all my pronunciations. Possibly mm -hmm. earlier. Research indicates that he was a French Huguenot, Protestant, not a Dutchman, as some would have assumed, to your point that you just made. Mm -hmm. Jean likely grew to manhood in France and then immigrated to the New World. Indications are that he went to Holland first and then shipped out. But mm -hmm. it is much more probable that he sailed from a French port and headed straight for the French settlements along the Canadian side of the St. Lawrence River. If he had sailed from Holland, he likely would have docked at New York City, but it is known that he lived in Canada for some time, so French port theory is likely. And it says, being a Huguenot, Jean was probably seeking religious freedom when he left the old world. But since French Canada was Catholic, Jean right. would be required to renounce his Protestant beliefs if he ever wished to hold title to land. Mm. Others in his family had done so and were prospering, if we are to assume that Antoine was his brother, because they're referring to someone else they have records on. Jean was not satisfied, and about 1670 to 1675, he struck out across the Adirondack Mountains for the Dutch Protestant settlement of Fort Orange which later became Albany. Yeah. Records from this time forward show that Jean adopted the alias Liberté as his own declaration of personal freedom. So isn't that yeah, interesting? That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. I wonder if they're saying that La Forte was his name and then he changed it to Liberté, which is different from what, you know, what we're seeing in other, other research. So that's interesting. And this is what happens when you start drilling down on this kind of stuff. But this particular piece of research does seem to support that. And uh, on Ancestry.com, he is listed as Jean Le Fort, Jean Le Fort, L-E by itself, and then F-O-R-T-E. Right. There's a dead end for his parents. On every ancestral site that I've been to, there's no indication of who his parents are, which generally is an indication that some piece of information is wrong. You're talking about Jan Liberté now, though, not... Yeah, whoever yes, his right. parents were, we don't right. know. Gotcha. I can't seem to find that anywhere. I didn't look super hard because, talk about a tangent that's not relevant to what we're doing here, we're talking about Charles Fort's great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather? Uh, five generation, uh, maybe six, uh, maybe seven. You do the math on that? Yeah, I'm going to explain what but, happens but after that. He's way up know? there. So uh, I don't know why we can't figure out who his parents are, because traditionally, when you're looking at somebody, it's not that long ago, the 1600s. You should be able to figure that out. So that's a little unusual. Now, one of John Ford's, Jan LaFord's sons, Nicholas, that son established a rope ferry. And then that became known as Ford's Ferry. And then houses build up around it. That becomes a hamlet of sorts. That continues to operate into the 20th century until the river was dammed for the Barge Canal. And then the whole area was flooded. So that went on for quite a long time. What's interesting is if you look now on Google Earth at uh, Albany and you just go pretty much straight north of Albany, just north of Latham, right up to where the Mohawk River is, 
you can mm. see Forts Ferry Road, still there, named yeah. for Charles Forts. I don't wonder how many people who live on Forts Ferry Road realize their connection to paranormal and anomalous events. I can guarantee you this, probably most don't give a crap. Yeah, they don't. They don't yeah. care Yeah, they don't. <laughs> until something weird happens, and then they want to know why. And uh, that sets them off on a journey, but mostly not. Yes. Most people, I think, Maybe don't not. Maybe really not. care. But Fort's it is Ferry cool. Road. I think we should go there. I always feel a connection. Uh, it, it's a little bit of legend tripping, but we have some friends. Adam from Graveyard Tales coming up again in part two. Yes. We were chatting about actually going to a location and also our good friend Bradley Netherton about actually going to these locations. Yes. He was actually at uh, the site of the Pascagoula abduction. Right. And he's going to be working on an episode with Rob, our good friend Rob Kay. So I'm, I'm glad we're all coming together here. Yes, indeed. But what we're talking about here is the gravity that gets soaked up into the place that you go visit. And though nothing's happened there for many, many years, there's something to it. So you and I are one day going to go to Ford's Ferry. I'm down. Hi, I'm Fort Eddie Fox. And when I'm not combing the woods for the Michigan Dog Man, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. This is a canine-heavy segue. I digress. Back to the show. Well, five generations after that, Peter Van Vranken Fort is born at Fort's Ferry in 1821. Okay, so now we're five generations later. And the Van Vrankens were another prominent family in the Albany area. But here's the difference. They left the ferry business, and Peter then moves to the city, and he had a knack for being an entrepreneur. So he worked in Herkimer, New York, and he, he was a manager of the Fulton Hotel in New York City for a while. And then, here you go, we're going we're gonna to tail into this, and you're, Scott's going to love this. Here's where the start of the grocery business happens, because he then establishes a wholesale fruit grocery store in Albany. And at this time, Albany was kind of booming with, a, with, with business and corrupt politics. <laughs> Sorry, don't get mad at me. That is uh, that is the author's uh, comment here. But it's Peter Van Vranken Fort who is the one that starts the the grocery business. You could say, okay. Now his first child is Charles Nelson Fort, born in Albany in 1849, and that is Charles Toddy Fort's father. So there you go, Peter Van Vranken Fort, which later become the, the company becomes P V Fort and Son. Yes. And his son is Charles Nelson Fort. Yes. And he was a small man and a, a, a bit cruel and vicious, but he was a natty dresser. <laughs> he always was very, as Charles would describe, very concerned and conscious about his appearance, dressed very well, very much a social climber in the Albany scene, but a, a, a sharp, small, crisp man charles nelson fort then marries agnes hoy that's the combining of the names we we talked a little bit about this, this is just kind of a recap here he marries agnes hoy she is a daughter of a very successful hardware merchant in the albany area and on august 6th that's when their first son charles hoy fort was born then charles and agnes's second son raymond nielsen fort was born on november 7th 1876 then the couple's third son, Clarence Van Vranken, that's his middle name, was born on November 11th, 1878. So every two years or so. But as we said in the first one, sadly, the third pregnancy here had complications. And not long after Clarence's birth, 
Agnes Hoy Fort died at the age of 25 from pericarditis, which is an inflammation around the heart. She passed away on January 2nd, 1879. At this point, Charles Nelson Fort was successful enough to move the boys into a large house at 53 Phillips Street in Albany, and he was well off that he could hire a housekeeping staff and then a housekeeper slash nanny to look after the boys, Mrs. Elizabeth Wasson, who loved and doted on them, and she kept them busy with chores and projects. Uh, otherwise, they they had a very rough and tumble, but fun childhood, the three boys. Very active in the neighborhood, running around and playing outside, as he says in his memoirs, they, they thought it was all for them just to play with. <laughs> just climbing up windows to look into them, <laughs> leaping over fire hydrants and off people's stoops. Uh, the neighborhood was their playground. So where they were athletic and energetic young boys. Again, maybe going against the uh, inside nebbish type. But he was he straddles two worlds here, Charles does at least. His brother, Raymond, didn't really have an interest in the collections or the, I guess, the academic nature that Charles did. He was more uh, suited to business. So he took after more of his father, Charles Nelson, as far as inheriting more business sense, you could say. Right. So Fort's memoirs, Many Parts, was written about 12 years later when he was in his mid-20s or so. It was oddly written in the first person plural. Yes. And with a lot of ornate prose. So. He, first person plural, meaning that he referred to himself as we. Yes. And he referred to his next eldest brother, Raymond, as the other kid. And then the youngest brother as the little kid. And their nanny, he named uh, Mrs. Wasson, was named uh, Mrs. Larson. And the father, they all grew to dislike, he simply called they. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ahead of his time on the pronouns, see? So they, <laughs> the father, Charles Nelson, he he actually did provide well for the boys. And you wonder, or I did, was that because, again, he was very socially conscious about their status with the well-to-do business community of the merchants and this and that, and Albany society, because he was really into that, and uh, he dressed very well. He like to be seen. They threw a lot of card parties, this and that. What year were they at 53 Phillips Street? Do we know? Slightly, probably after 1879. You know, I love to, whenever these addresses are in here, this is one of the things that I love. I don't know if you got that address from Steinmeier's book. He had mm -hmm. a lot of addresses in there. I always like to look. And almost every time I went to look at whatever place that he and Annie lived at or wherever mm -hmm. he lived mm -hmm. was gone. One thing that's absolutely still standing is yeah. the church they got married in, which is really cool. Surrounded by skyscrapers, but it's still right. there. <laughs> but I'm looking at a house at 53 Phillips Street in Albany that looks to me like it might be the house they actually lived in. It's entirely possible. It's definitely a very old structure. I want to send this to you. I know we're okay. recording, but I want you to take a look at this. Oh, on the phone. I here. feel like mm -hmm. this home... Of course, you kind of have to scroll down here. I'll send you a picture. Going I feel like this one could be the one that the Fort family actually lived in. Oh, the gray one here? Is that what you're talking yeah. about? That looks like an, a potential, you know, like 1870s home to me. Very possible. Now, the second house from his childhood, I'm going to mention a little bit later. I want, uh, you're going to have fun looking up because it's a little, there's a little more description with that one. Right. And it, it may be uh, even more uh, findable, I suppose. Charles Hoy started to, to tackle his beliefs, and he could never commit really to any one belief. Like, he he liked Sunday school. He said, well, almost liked it because he liked the, the books that they were going over. And he said that religion was a very strong emotion in him. However, just as strong was his emotion to resist religion. 
or resisting of that emotion of liking religion. You know, he said that it was very easy to raise your hand and claim yourself as Christian, but then something inside him was like, don't raise your hand, don't raise your hand. Right, right. He's starting to battle inside, and I think it's important to go over this because you'll see in his later writing, he struggled with, especially in uh, Book of the Dam, like, well, here's a theory on this. Well, then again, maybe not later on in the book. I don't know. What do you think? Who cares what you think? <laughs> Who cares what science thinks? I'm telling you this happened. Maybe it's this. It's like, it's just all over the place. So he's struggling to, and he, he can't make sense of any of it. You don't get any answers. And as I said in part one, that's my new thing. I, I'm never going to tell you this is probably the case. I will give you some possible likelihoods, I think, or what's more likely than others, but we don't know. And you're a fool and a braggart or just sporting a lot of hubris if you say you can get this figured out because none of this is figure outable. Just you'll never get a satisfactory answer. Now, here's the second hum. Okay. So at this time, they move again. So, but this time it's a bigger house, it seems. A very tony five story brick home at 253 State Street. Yeah. I'm looking at this it. It's right just a now. block away from the Capitol in Albany. Yeah. It's something, and it's definitely still there. But there's a new addition to the family here. In 1886, Charles Nelson Fort is going to marry Blanche Whitney. Now, she comes from another prominent Albany family. Her father is the secretary of the gas company. And like all new step-parents, I believe, they want to win over the kids. So what mom Blanche, new mom Blanche did was uh, she did the tactic where you find out what do they like to do? And Charles liked to collect stamps. And she said, well, I'll tell you what, let's all go down or you tell me where there's a good stamp collector and we'll go right now. We'll buy a bunch of stamps. And so they were very excited about it. Uh, they tried not to let on, but they went down with her and they, they bought a bunch of stamps. And in his mind, it's an easy way to travel around the world with stamps you get little pieces, uh, you know, a stamp from Japan or a stamp from the Middle East. And it's very exciting. You get a little bit that actually came from somewhere far and exotic. And I guess all, at one point, all three boys had dreams of exploring the world, escaping the, the home life there, you know, running away to, to actually getting Shanghai and, and going and exploring all these fantastical places around the world. That was a dream of theirs, which kids that are in a tough house maybe have a dream of escaping somehow and getting away, and also growing up, being your own adult, which he did. He desperately wanted to grow up and be an adult. So here's something interesting to note, is that with the stamps, he's a collector by nature. So it makes sense to me. Like it, that I found interesting, and I was glad to learn about that. It's like, yeah, he's a collector of oddities, natural stuff, and that's what he wanted to be. His grandfather, when he asked him, Fell, uh, <laughs> have you decided yet about... <laughs> What do you want to be when you grow up? And so Charles would always ignore that question because he knew his answer wasn't going to fly with the family. But uh, he said, uh, well, I want to be a naturalist. And, and the grandfather, he, he loved books. Uh, it says here he's mystified by a lot of them, but he, he loved to read. He loved to entertain. He, was, he sounded like a, a nice guy, nicer than his son. And uh, he was puzzled by this. And, of course, what a lot of fathers would like is that you follow in their footsteps. And certainly his son, Charles Nelson, was going to do that because Peter V. Fort had dreams of establishing a wholesale grocery empire. And to do that, you need generations of you working and building other chains and expanding and all that. Of course, those are his dreams. He's very entrepreneurial, as we said. Same thing with his father. And they had visions of 
Charles Toddy joining the family business and carrying on the tradition as the oldest son, but he did not care a whit about any of that, except for, it says here, he was really into chili sauce. So at 21, he had visions that they would have a big party and it would just be bottle after bottle of chili sauce. (laughs) He's dreaming about being 21, an adult getting out of there, drinking as much chili sauce as he wants, and being an independent adult. Their father made them work in their off hours after school and on Saturdays work at the factory. And what they would do is steal a bunch of stationery and write off to these stamp collectors all over the world asking for stamps. And of course, it's coming across on PV Ford and Son stationery like, ooh, sounds official. Well, this is a real right. business. <laughs> Please send over some, and I guess they would give him some money. So basically, they were just using like hundreds of letters going all over trying to get stamps. And I don't know, I can't remember if they paid for them or not or where they found the money, but basically, they called them their paper soldiers marching off all over the world to come back to them. And uh, it was kind of fun. So, but they were also kind of rebellious. So uh, they hated the job. Like one anecdote that's described is that was to sit in the upstairs attic of the warehouse and peel off the old labels off the cans and put on the new PV Fortin Sons labels. And they just couldn't do it. Like Charles just, he did a few and then went sat down. <laughs> Raymond yeah. was a little bit better and he would keep at it longer. And then after a while, they would just start opening the cans and eating the contents. Like, yeah, we had some peaches, asparagus, this and that, had ourselves a little <laughs> lunch. Nobody's up in the attic area, you know, above the crates and the, uh, and the boxes and all that, paying attention to them. They would slide down the elevator cables, dangerous stuff, like rickety boards with nails. They were having a grand old adventure because nobody was watching out for them. Oh, they would also see, uh, they'd get back to work because they could see, I think if dad was coming up to check on them, the elevator cable, of course, would start to move. Oh, right. There was a rust patch on the cables, like, okay, he's one floor away. Like, get back to it. You know, they would (laughs) pretend to be busy again. So very typical, yeah, mischievous boys. Yeah. They hatched a plan to run away and see the world when they were at this age, 13, 14 years old, a little too young to run off and see the world. But they had a schoolyard friend named Biff Allen, and he was being tormented by his mother. So he wanted to run away. So they hatched a plan like, this is what we're going to do. Okay. One, we got a lot of food here that's transportable. So that's in our favor. All the canned stuff we want. We're going to take this, we're going, we're going to run away to Upper Burma, and we're going to get jobs as elephant drivers for $18 a week. <laughs> That's what we're going to do. <laughs> Kings of Kafiristan. Yes. So, of course, Charles and Raymond, they don't like their father. They want to go away, and they have a mind of adventure. You know, elephants and uh, excitement and exotic stories that they just heard. There's no TV now. There's no YouTube. They don't know what it's like, but it sounds very romantic. They sold their stamp collection and were saving the money, and then they would start stealing cans from their Eagle Street store, and they were hiding them in Biff's garret. I think it's a garage of sorts. As he says, more groceries than we could ever possibly carry. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but they started just pilfering cans and hiding it in, uh, in Biff's place. Okay, well, the little kid, Clarence, the youngest, he realizes that he's too young to go, and he it makes him very sad. He he latches onto his brothers emotionally, very strongly, and doesn't really have many interests of his own. He just looks up to them and he admires them and cherishes them. And you know, they said, "Well, don't worry, you're a little too young, but we'll think of you a lot." And 
he never cried, but they found him that morning as they were plotting their escape that he was fully dressed and ready to go. Just to sleep yeah. in his little bed. Just he wanted them to go so bad. But of course, he had his bundle, his bindle under one arm. And uh, they said, well, should we bring him? But like, India is no place for little boy. So they kissed him goodbye. And uh, they snuck out of there. And it's just a really heartwarming, touching story of the three, the bond between the three brothers and the different ages. They thought, he'll be fine. But you and I, we have to go. So they crept down the stairs and they waited out on the street and they took one last look at the home and guess what happened next who didn't show biff the friend oh he, that's right yes <laughs> yeah you know, i know you've read this i'm doing this no i audience. have yeah no i, I know i'm doing this for the remember. audience yeah uh, what's what's kind of funny is that uh, of course the other you know they're all ready to go right biff had some uh, fantastical excuse why he couldn't go the next day and they kind of forgot about it. And then Raymond said, well, you, you know why he hatched this plan, right? And got us to go along. They're not very wealthy. And it was a plot to basically store a lot of canned goods at their house for the winter. Oh, yeah. And Charles couldn't believe, like, no, no, he wouldn't do that. He's a good kid. He's uh, That's a bit underhanded. Uh, he really wanted to go. He just can't. And then he would see as he says, pickles on the table whenever they went through Biff's dining room. They would be playing in the yard, and Biff would be embarrassed by uh, kicking over lobster cans. Soup cans were everywhere, and they would just pretend not to see them. So, yes, they that family <laughs> ate all the provisions that they had yes, offered. for the trip to <laughs> There we go. Didn't work, yeah. That shows in a sense of adventure, wonder about the world, an eagerness to get out there and explore it all. It's like Stand By Me. Right. That's what I'm uh, cluing into. I must admit, though, I've never seen that whole movie all the way through. Really? Sunday. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just, yes. <laughs> I've never, I've seen big chunks of it. Wow. Well, getting back to, I guess in that vein, they kicked around and, as he said, it's amazing all three of them survived. One time, the three boys found an old, rusty revolver of, he says, a large caliber, which is even more deadly than a small caliber. They're all deadly. But they're goofing off with it, pointing it at each other, and... Then somebody points it away, pulls the trigger, and it goes off. They could have shot one of each other. Yeah. And as I said before, just running around in that old building, like beams would fall, planks would fall through. You know, they would run out on the ice, and uh, sometimes it would break, but nobody fell through. And he says, uh, here we are still. That in all this world, there should be more than two or three grown men seems remarkable. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Another anecdote here where he accidentally burns a fence in the back garden that they set on fire. His father's had enough. And he he asked him, like, why do you do these bad things? Because, again, that's what people want. When somebody does something horrible on the news, why? Why did you do this? And when they right. have no answer, it's infuriating. You just want to know, why did you do this? And the, I don't know, just for fun. And he didn't care at this point. He's getting older. He doesn't care about the punishments anymore. His dad says, no, tell me, try to think and don't be afraid. Why do you do these bad things? And he says, our lips formed just for fun. <laughs> and he said, his father struck him savagely. Blood gushed from our nose, meaning his nose. Then we were there. And Mrs. Larson said, Toddy's nose bleeds so readily. She's not stepping in. You didn't do that back then. Yeah. Nosebleeds come very easy to him and he gets smacked in the face a lot. Maybe that has something to do with it. 
And so in defiance, he starts bleeding all over the place. He's also punching himself in the nose to keep more blood going, and he's smearing it everywhere on the, the curtains. It's getting on the carpet, on the chairs. As he says, a dirty, groveling little beast, crazed to get even and doing damage was the only way to get even. Rubbing our nose on lace curtains, making the room a horror room, gurgling hysterically and then just sodden, not caring what should be done with us. In fact, wishing they would kill us. For suicide had been in our mind from the earliest days, trying a sharp rap on our nose to renew the supply. For the truth is that nose bleeding was an ailment of ours. It was rough enough that uh, he considered, like, I wish this guy would just finish me off. That's also part of what Jim Steinmeier says here is that the world seems wildly beyond his control, is in his words. And it's like, I don't get why these things are happening. Why there are punishments that seem far exceeding of the, of the crime. Anyway, he does his bleeding act here. Well, at 13, you mentioned this in part one, he meets someone who's going to change his life, a young lady named Anna Filing. She's four years older than him, and her parents are John and Catherine Filing. Anna was born in Sheffield, England. And then the Filings emigrated to New York when she was nine, and then Anna came to Albany to live with her relatives. And so for a short period of time, she may have worked as a cook in the home of Charles's grandfather, John Hoy. That's maybe how they met. And she was fascinated talking to Charles because he had this romantic and imaginative interest in faraway places, as Steinmeier says. And they became good friends, even though she's much older. Yeah. Four years in when you're that age. It's, uh, so yeah, what, she's 17, he's 13. But she likes this little fellow, even though he's kind of awkward. And I think he's much easier to talk to older girls because... Yeah, I was going to say that. I seem yeah. to remember Steinmeier pointing that out. He seemed to have an easier time talking to kids that were older than he was. Right, right. She was the love of his life and vice versa. And she took very, very good care of him uh, right up until he passed away. They found a common interest and he did end up with somebody. Well, she was very supportive of him and she really believed in his ability to write. And she tried to give him the yes. space to do that. And uh, when he would be have a project that he was working on, she would take on extra work out in the world so that he could do the writing. It's very cool. Well, the torment at home continues on. As he gets bigger, there is an advantage. Uh, as we said uh, in part one, he was getting so chubby. He realized his, his thighs were chubby. <laughs> he was thick. And Fort says the advantage of that is that the other brothers were continuing to get beaten. But he didn't beat me up anymore. After that one time, I almost forced him to the floor. So at that point, small diminutive dad, slight dad, realizes, well, I, I can't hit him anymore. He's going to take me apart like a cheap suit. So then he switched types of punishments, which was imprisonment, essentially. So as Ford says, he's no longer beating us, but locking us in a little dark room, giving us bread and water, sentencing us to several days or several weeks in solitude. Three times a day, the door would be opened and bread and water be thrust into the darkness. Also three times a day, a bundle comes down from the air shaft from one of the other brothers who was sitting at the dinner table, and then he would put scraps of food into a handkerchief or a kerchief that was on their knees, and then when no one was looking, he would kind of squirrel that away. So they said they took care of one another so well when they were in solitary confinement that the person in confinement actually ate better than the kid at the table who was not eating all of his dinner because he was putting it in napkins. So they formed a tight bond. They believed that they were in prison of sorts. There was gas lighting. They would also put down a match so they could have some light. 
but then the dad would turn the fixture so you couldn't light it anymore. And then a monkey wrench would be lowered down the air shaft. So that's a taste of the punishments that were doled out to them. Clarence, who was referred to as the little kid, he looked up to his brothers a lot. The home was abusive enough, Fort believes, that he started to develop a twitch in his eye. And he started acting up. And he was then punished the most of all. He would do stuff like stepping on the plants just to see what would happen. And at one time, he he lured the little neighbor boy to the fence. And I guess there was a hole on the bottom of the fence. And he started pulling him through. I don't know why. Just to, Of course, the, the kid's parents come running out and they're screaming. He's pulling so forcefully, it almost ripped all the kid's clothes off. And eventually, the father has enough. So when Clarence is 10 in 1888, he says, uh, that's it. You're going to Burnham Industrial Farm in Canaan, New York. And this is a place for wayward boys uh, founded in 1886 by Frederick and Catherine Burnham. And it emphasized and focused on hard work and discipline so they could become decent members of society. So the family starts to change now. Charles himself, and here's a turning point, is that he starts to lose interest in collecting stamps and losing interest in his bird feathers and bird nests and taxidermy that he'd learned and, and categorizing rocks and this and that. Uh, he then tries to collect autographs from authors. Uh, he gets one from Jules Verne. And then he starts to lose interest in that. And he's questioning himself is, why don't I care about this stuff? Like if he breaks something, he just, eh, so what? he would lose his mind when he was a young kid if something, an egg fell off the shelf and broke. Now he doesn't care so much. But what he is starting to care about is his own writing and the power of that. There were luring and wonderfulness and the feeling of creative instinct seemed godlike to take a pencil and then let things happen. And he starts filling out his diary What's interesting is that he realizes also that I have trouble describing things well, like other than if it's just very mundane. I might need to get better at that, or I might need to further my imagination or figure out how to really write this. But the important thing here is that he's now interested in writing, and this is the turning point where he starts to become, he wants to be a writer. He wants to keep that going. How can I do this? Now, at this point, he gets an opportunity to write about some stuff because his dad wanting to, again, impress their fellow society members and his wife, <laughs> arranges for them to all go up to a, a very tony and fancy fashionable lake resort on Lake Champlain for a whole month. He's going to send them up there. They're going to go visit. They can be seen there and have their parties, blah, 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 go fishing and hunting. And Charles and Raymond loved it. They're city kids. They've never been out to the woods, and it just blew their minds. The the openness. Uh, the older kids were nicer. They weren't getting into fights with them like they were in uh, in Albany. The camp was a great experience, and that really opened his eyes up to nature. And so they they loved it. Uh, he'd never even heard people sing in harmony before, and he thought that was amazing. And uh, they saw bear marks in a tree, and like that was it started to open up his mind to wonder. And something else happens here that is important to young Charles is that. He wasn't great at schoolwork, but he does join the Literary Society, and his uncle, you can credit a lot to maybe starting his career, giving a, a kickstart. His uncle, which was only about a decade older than him, was John Hoy, and John was the younger brother of his mother, Agnes, who passed away. 
Right. John Hoy always took an interest in him and he, and he saw him as a younger brother, not so much a nephew, right? When they're closer yes. in age. And he was always interested in his writing. He'd ask him about it. Like, how you doing? Let me, can you show some of that to me? Let me read it. And they got along. And then John realizes that, well, he's 16 years old and school's not real great for him. <laughs> he's not doing well in his exams. So he asked him a question. He's like, hey, what do you think about being in the newspaper business? You think you like that? And and it's funny how Charles describes his answer here. Oh, all right. And then later says, by which we meant that nothing could be more attractive to us. Like, yes, I want to be a journalist. That sounds awesome. John Hoy, he has a boyhood friend that was editor of the Albany Argus. And he says, uh, go around to the Argus. Not much is going to happen for you at first. You're just going to be like an intern or whatever, but it's going to spark ideas for you. And then someday you may go down to New York. So as he says to him a few times, just keep your rubbers on and you'll not slip up. And that meaning the, the rubber coating around your shoes in the winter. Right. Stick with this and you'll make it to New York and big things might happen. And that's the start of Charles's journalism career of sorts. His dad never respected him for that. He read the paper that Charles went to go be an intern at every day, never realizing that his son could write. You can't say too much about this, about John Hoy's influence, because... I don't think we'd have Charles Fort if it weren't for John Hoy, yes. based on what I took away from Steinmeier's book, because Fort's father didn't support him at all. He wanted him to be in the grocery business with him, the wholesale grocery business. He did everything he could to get that to happen, and it didn't happen. And Hoy was supportive of Charles wanting to write, helping him get that first gig and being interested in what he was doing. And when you consider how emotionally and physically abused all three of those boys were, mm -hmm. and you think about how just a little bit of nurture helped bring the world Charles Ford, yeah. who might have never come out of his shell had he been left with his father as the only guidance, who, who right. was a horribly abusive man. So. And without that, you know, we might not be here, our podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> it, I think it it's really cool. It all is, because you're right. It's the, as sad and unfortunate as it is, his father being so strict with him and that causing, as you could say, a callous or a scar of defiance with him and a questioning of authority mixed with a spark to want to write professionally. All of those experiences helped form what he would later become. And so, yeah, it's, I guess, like a lot of lives, it, it's, you're in the crucible, you either do something with it or you don't. And in this case, it's easy for us to sum up his whole life here in just a few hours, but really it's a lifetime experience that you could draw a line from what he was doing then to what we're, you're listening to right now, in a sense. Hey, this is Brittany, co-host of We All Pod down here. And when I'm not reviewing horror movies or looking for the Snallagaster around Middletown, Maryland, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now, let's get back to the show. And now he wants to report on stories. And so he, again, as it says, he's uh, with his usual obsession, he just focused on being a reporter. He would record his stepmother's gossip. He would make notes on that. And then that would end up in the social columns the next day in the newspaper, she became <laughs> eventually afraid to say anything around him. So Charles actually started to do well at the paper. He was getting compliments. Uh, the editors were liking what he was doing. And he was growing up. And by 17 now, he's smoking a pipe. Uh, he's having some cheap beer when he can afford it. So he's, uh, he's feeling grown up here. 
and he's figuring out how to do the reporting. He's not getting much help, so he's figuring out a lot of it on his own. One night, though, he loses track of the time, and he gets back home to the family home at 253 State Street, and it's a little after 10, but the door's locked, and he pounds on the door, no answer, does it again. Obviously, Dad is saying, nope, you're not getting in. I don't like you coming in after 10. Figure out where you're going to stay tonight. So as an act of defiance, Charles grabs a cobblestone and smashes the stained glass window or glass that's in the doorway. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure it was kind of expensive then. And then he, he pokes it out, reaches inside, and unlocks the door. And, of course, Dad comes storming downstairs has him sleep with the servants. But at this point for Charles, like he's been punished in every manner that his dad could think of. He didn't care anymore. And for a week, he couldn't have any meals with the family and nobody was allowed to give him food. The servants weren't allowed. Listen to this anecdote. During this week or whatever, he is getting pretty tired of this kind of treatment and People at the plate are passing around a, a plate of cake, okay? <laughs> the cake plate's being passed around, and everyone's taking a slice. He's not allowed, except he grabbed for a slice as it came near him, and his stepmother reaches out and tries to get the plate away from him, and he takes the wedge of cake that he stole off the plate, and he smashes it into her face. And at that moment... The whole house explodes. Dad gets up. Chairs are turned over. I'm sure there's a lot of yelling <laughs> and sobbing. Charles runs into the hallway, grabs his coat, and he goes out the front door and he slams the door. And that's the last time he will live at that house with his family and father. So what's he going to do now? He's still under 18. He's, he's not an adult. But he goes to live with his grandfather on his mother's side. And he was much more welcoming. And also the grandfather's trying to get the family back together, the, the Hoys. And also his hero, John Hoy, was living there at the time. He'd moved back home. So it's a much more welcoming home, household to live in. But of course, his dad, uh, he doesn't want him back home. And he begrudgingly has to pay his father-in-law, or I guess former father-in-law, I'm not sure how that works, money for his room and board. His father may have uh, loved that he was on the street for a couple of weeks and come groveling back, asking for forgiveness. That's what I was figuring. Uh, but no, he's doing okay. He's living there. And during this time, though, he's wanting more adventure. And he decides that he's going to go visit his little brother at the Burnham Industrial Farm. So he concocts this idea to go visit him. He's going to maybe break him out. They're going to have an adventure. And uh, you know, just to say hello, he hasn't seen him in like two years. And so he plans a trip up there on his own. He has a revolver with him that Biff Allen from earlier gave to him. So he's got a gun and he says, uh, well, I, you see, we could not tell what we might do when we should see the little kid, his brother Clarence, after not having seen him in such a long time. And our hip pocket was a revolver. We have always felt contempt for auxiliary weapons, but Biff Allen had pressed this revolver upon us. So he goes there, and what he realizes when he sees his little brother is that he's doing okay. He's well taken care of. He still has that twitch that he got from uh, the abuse at his own home. But he seems fine. He's healthy. He's not been uh, any worse for the wear. He doesn't have a whole lot to say. He gets introduced, and they kind of hang out for a little bit. And he comes back in the evening. And this is a little touching moment, too, is that I think he just wanted to see him one more time. 
And so he comes back to his window. He throws the pebbles like you see in the movies. And his brother says, uh, you know, I'll be right back. And he thought he was going to like open the door. So I think Charles climbed up the trellis, if I remember correctly. The little brother comes back with a piece of cake because he thought he was not doing well and was hungry. Right. He thanked him and he always kept that piece of cake wrapped up as a keepsake from his little brother. And sadly, there's no indication that they ever saw each other again. I remember when Steinmeier said that in the book, I was just like, wow, they never saw each other again. And mm. the other thing that was really interesting about this, or there's, you know, we don't know that they did. So why right. is that? What happened to him? His takeaway from this was he was ready for an adventure. He wanted this whole thing is going to go bust his brother out. It was going to be right. this big adventure, traveling out there to find him. And and he found it all to be pretty mundane. And like you yeah. said, his brother was okay. Right. They hung out a few times, and then he just went back to Albany. We do hear from Raymond later, the middle brother, because he comments on Charles's writing, and uh, I believe he's interviewed probably uh, after that. But we do hear from him. You just don't hear from Clarence, so we don't know what happened. What this all says to me as I close out the early years of Charles Fort in this section here is that People are growing up. The little boy who acted up out of abuse and wanting attention because he was frustrated, didn't know what else to do, it seemed like, other than to act up, was now straightened out. He seemed like a fine young man. He was doing well at the industrial farm. He was taking to it. And here's another important aspect to Charles is that there was a romantic notion about going to see his brother. It was going to be an adventure. And they didn't have an adventure. They had a nice little visit. And it was kind of quiet, and that was it. So the idea in his mind, as far as his writing goes, was not so much, as I said earlier, about the adventure itself. It's the idea and the process of having the adventure that was maybe more interesting to him. And maybe that clues in about what he writes about later, 14 events, is that, yeah, flakes of meat raining down, blood, black rain, people bursting into flame. It's all weird. Those individual events freak people out, but that's not even really the important reason. It's why is this happening? How is this happening? Is it stuff coming down from the Great Sargasso Sea? As he said earlier, is there blood coming because above us, somewhere in the heavens, is an actual living organism, and somehow we're connected to the earth and it, and it's injured and it's bleeding? Is that what's happening? What is the philosophy here? It rained blood. All right. We know that. As he said, hundreds of thousands of people by now have seen ships from another world come to visit the cities, uh, the major cities of the earth. We all know that. But what's the point here? What process is happening that allows this? What's going on? Like with his adventures, it wasn't so much about what actually happened on the adventure. It's the idea of doing these things that were more appealing to him. So... As I hand this over to you, he's doing whatever reporting he can. A lot of this at the time in Brooklyn is mundane crap that he doesn't really care about. And nobody's really putting any effort into it, as I alluded to in part one, as he says, I learned that every female inhabitant of Brooklyn was an amateur actress and every male inhabitant sang in a male quartet. Everybody in Brooklyn belonged to a lodge of some kind and every lodge gave a theatrical performance when it had no one to initiate and had nothing else to do. As a 10-year resident of New York City, I can say <laughs> that I was shocked to find that Brooklyn has not really changed yeah. at all in all the, all the ever since even Charles Ford's time. It's the same. Right. There were hipsters there the whole time. 
Yeah, you, you get the flyers and blah, blah, blah. So Fort, you know, he's writing for the local paper. What he would do is him and his buddies, they would just get the the flyer, you could say, for the band. It's like, okay, who's here? I'll write the names down. And then just write a description or a review of the thing and throw in some juicy words like lifelike interpretation, uh, dramatic intensity, and then just make up the rest. And nobody knew the difference. <laughs> That's right. He's, and he says, uh, we wrote our own reviews. It was actually always easier than the actual reporting. He was supposed to attend a lecture on Abraham Lincoln. And instead of going there uh, a few miles away, he just wrote his own. He went to the library, looked up a biography. He explains it and excuses it this way, uh, asking for a biography, wrote my own lecture, which was creditable enough to the lecturer, for I took more pains than I should have taken with veritable extracts. This guy did a bad, I did a good job that that guy would have done. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I just, I didn't have to travel. There you go. You know about Abraham Lincoln? Sold. And he was on salary. So it wasn't about how many words were in there, as we mentioned part one. Like, yeah, just, I'm not going to travel to go see your stage performance, your singing quartet, or your lecture. I'm going to go write this and go look for other more interesting things. And I think that's the also the dovetail into the part of the story you're going to talk about in that these are the more interesting things. He's uh, about 1819 when he actually embarks on a career that would take him on that path to being a journalist and an author. Well, you know, we talked about the journalistic part of his career in part one, and we covered that pretty well, how he came up and the kind of writing he did that led him to becoming a novelist. And then we ended part one with a quote from his first and probably one of his signature books that he tried to publish. It was the third one that he tried to publish, but the first one that actually got published, if you don't count uh, The Outcast Manufacturers, which was fictional. This was the first Fortean book that he made, and that was called The Book of the Damned. And we want to talk a little bit about the climate around the Book of the Damned and what happened when it came out. Fort, in a lot of ways, he was an outsider. And now he's got this book out that seems to be making waves. And that's because of its approach. And what many would say was a misinterpreted attack on the dogma of science. He was prone to being attacked himself by atheist authors or science fiction writers who felt that everything they dreamed up in their work was rooted in a plausible form of science. I would say if you're pissing off every side of the argument, yes. you're doing something right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's what we strive for. So, yeah. so you have these personalities in the orbit with Ford, uh, presumably in part because of his patron, noted author, whom we mentioned in part one, and best friend, Theodore Dreiser. Now, Dreiser was making sure in every way he could that Ford was published and read and because Dreiser was respected and a publisher himself, he made sure that writers like H.L. Mencken and H.G. Wells were aware of Fort's work as well. So let's cover a little bit of background about H.L. Mencken. This is actually from uh, the Wikipedia page on him, because a lot of people haven't heard of him. Henry Lewis Mencken, born uh, 1880, died in 1956, was an American journalist, essayist, satirist, cultural critic, and scholar of American English. He commented widely on the social scene, literature, music, prominent politicians, and contemporary movements. His satirical reporting on the Scopes trial, which he was the one who dubbed the monkey trial, also gained him attention. So for younger listeners who have not heard of the Scopes trial or the Scopes monkey trial, uh, here's a little bit of background on that. The Scopes trial, formerly the state of Tennessee versus John Thomas Scopes, and commonly referred to as the Scopes monkey trial, was an American legal case from July 10th to July 21st in 1925, in which a high school teacher, John T. Scopes, was accused of violating 
Tennessee's Butler Act, which had made it unlawful to teach human evolution in any state-funded school. The trial was deliberately staged in order to attract publicity to the small town of Dayton, Tennessee, where it was held. Scopes was unsure whether he had ever actually taught evolution, but he incriminated himself deliberately so the case could have a defendant, which is, that's a, a typical thing with a case that goes to a high court anyway, or if it has a, you know, a very important cultural significance, there's not always a defendant, so someone will sort of volunteer to be that person. Scopes was found guilty and was fined $100, which would be equivalent to $1,500 in 2020, but the verdict was overturned on a technicality. But the trial served its purpose of drawing intense national publicity as national reporters flocked to Dayton to cover the high-profile lawyers who had agreed to represent each side. William Jennings Bryan, three-time presidential candidate and former Secretary of State, argued for the prosecution, while Clarence Darrow served as the defense attorney for Scopes. The trial publicized the fundamentalist modernist controversy, which set modernists who said evolution was not inconsistent with religion against fundamentalists who said the word of God, as revealed in the Bible, took priority over all human knowledge. The case was thus seen both as a theological contest and as a trial on whether evolution should be taught in schools. If you've never heard of this, uh, there's a little movie you can watch called Inherit the Wind yeah. that is about the actual trial and will give you more information on it. It's easy to look up. Classic film with Spencer Tracy. Just a lot of great faces in there. Gene Kelly, Dick York, Harry Morgan. Uh, a lot of people you'll recognize if you uh, uh, like older uh, films. Also a play, an American play, That's uh, right. Inherit the Wind. Coming back to Mencken, we just want to give a little bit of background on that because that was one of the big flags on his uh, field of action. As a scholar, Mencken is known for the American language, a multi-volume study of how the English language is spoken in the United States. As an admirer of the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, he was an outspoken opponent of organized religion, theism, and representative democracy, the last of which he viewed as a system in which inferior men dominated their superiors. Mencken was a supporter of scientific progress, this is important, and was critical of osteopathy and chiropractic. He was also an open critic of economics. He opposed the American entry into both World War I and World War II, and some of the terminology in his private diary entries has been described by some researchers as racist and anti-Semitic, although this characterization has been disputed. Larry S. Gibson argued that Mencken's views on race changed significantly between his early and later writings and that it was more accurate to describe Mencken as an elitist rather than mm. racist. Both uh, not great is being called, but <laughs> and when you read in Steinmeier's book about him, the guy was definitely a very opinionated, yeah. strong force. He knew what he believed, and on top of that, being a proponent of science, he would be at loggerheads a little bit with what Fort was writing about. So here's some quotes from Steinmeier's book, the biography on Charles Fort that that uh, we referenced uh, so much in this series. This is from Mencken. The inferior man's reasons for hating knowledge are not hard to discern, wrote H.L. Mencken. He hates it because it is complex. Thus, his search is always for shortcuts. All superstitions are such shortcuts. The cosmologies that educated men toy with are all inordinately complex. But the cosmology of Genesis is so simple that even a yokel can grasp it. So he accepts it with loud hosannas and has one more excuse for hating his betters. Mm. So... <laughs> That gives you a good 
good picture of Mencken's personality. Irascible. Yes. yes. He was a, a, a you have to, cranky, I guess. Yes. And it's right. continuing from Steinmeier's book. This is from page 180 of his book. Mencken was capable of coining his own words too, which Fort was sort of famous for. He feared that America was becoming a boobocracy. <laughs> and when he read The Book of the Damned, he found it full of the ignorant superstition he abhorred. He was already suspicious of Dreiser's causes. Now he wrote to his friend in disbelief. Dear Dreiser, I have just read Fort's book of the damned and note your remarks upon the slipcover. If they are authentic, what is the notion that you gather from this book? Is it that Fort seriously maintains that there is an upper Sargasso Sea somewhere in the air and that all of the meteors, blood, frogs, and other things he lists dropped out of it? The thing leaves me puzzled. Although the publisher's blurb on the dust jacket mentioned that Fort was capable of sardonic humor, Minkin was uncharacteristically tone deaf. Dreiser responded in defense of Fort's talents. Yeah. I consider Fort one of the most fascinating personalities I have ever known. He is a great thinker and a man of deep and cynical humor. He is so far above any literary craftsman working in the country, your own excellent self excluded, that measurements are futile. Many critics were unable to calculate his sense of humor. Even Edward Bernays, advertising the Bonnie and Liverite books, admitted to being puzzled by Fort, who gave no hint of his intentions. Quote, I do not know to this day whether Fort took himself seriously or wrote tongue-in-cheek, end quote. Right. The simple answer, and this is Steinmeier, is that he did both. He was a writer of humor, and he thought he'd discovered chinks in the armor of science and holes in our concept of the world. So this is where you got these writers on opposite ends of the spectrum. Mencken is a proponent of Darwin and the current state of science in general, and he's clearly very put off by Fort's book and approach. And Steinmeier also writes that even that uh, Mencken and Dreiser are friends, Mencken loathes the part of Dreiser's personality that believes in anomalous events, Ouija boards and such, and, and therefore criticizing Fort gives him a chance to needle Dreiser about not only Fort's work, but his own beliefs. Right. You can't be, I guess nowadays he might be accused of both sides-ism. Yes. Not an ist, but an ism, because people don't like that. They want you to pick one or the other. They don't like yes. you riding the fence. Tell us, are you putting one over on us? You making fun of us? Making monkeys out of us? Or do you really believe this stuff? It paints Mankin as a bit humorless. And personally, I don't trust anybody that doesn't really have a sense of humor or doesn't get tone. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't, yeah. It makes you seem more like a bore. And I, I do love a lot of Mankin's essays and, and quotes. Yeah, he's somebody you've referenced off and on since I've known, what was it? I can't even remember now. You oh, had... a long, long time ago. He was even my, uh, 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 <laughs> one of my email addresses. That's what it was. I was like, why is this so familiar to me? That's what it was. Yeah. Nobody our age knew, really knew who he was uh, mm -hmm. back then. And this mm -hmm. is what I'll say now. Not that it makes any difference uh, or I, I, I give a hoot about uh, what's popular in pop culture, but I bet a lot more people know who Fort is and maybe Dreiser than Mencken. I'm not sure. I don't know. Yeah. Well, in responding towards DeForce in the next category, the other person that Dreiser sent the Book of the Dam to, who was at the top mm -hmm. of his game at this time, H.G. Wells. Oh, yes. So I want to read this section on H.G. Wells' interaction with Dreiser regarding the Book of the Damned. Again, this is from Jim Steinmeier's book on Charles Fort. Dear Dreiser, I'm having Fort's Book of the Damned sent back to you. Fort seems to be one of the most damnable bores who ever cut scraps from out-of-the-way newspapers. Yeah. I thought they were facts. As he writes like a drunkard, Lowe has been sent to me but has gone into my waste paper basket. And what do you mean by forcing orthodox science, in quotes, to do this or that? 
science is a continuing exploration, and how in the devil can it have an orthodoxy? The next thing you'll be writing is the dogmas of science, like some blasted Roman Catholic priest on the defensive. When you tell a Christian you don't believe some yarn he can't prove, he always calls you dogmatic. Scientific workers are first-rate stuff and very ill-paid, and it isn't for the likes of you and me to heave forts at them. God dissolve and forgive your Fortean society. Yours, H.G. <laughs> Wells. Well, there you go. That's yeah. see, now you know with Wells and the, like the time machine, everything right. on it he thought was rooted in some sort of projected reality of the future, like as he understood it at the time. He's one of those writers, like Arthur C. Clarke, right. who was trying to bring science like make an accurate projection of the future of science right. for his own futurism, to yes. have it be accurate, as opposed to a fanciful, fantastic science fiction writer right. who is just breaking rules willy-nilly. Yeah. So you can see him being like, oh, you can't just say whatever. It's got to make sense. I don't care if it is 100 years in the future. So, But then you have John Carter with a Civil War soldier right. teleporting to Mars. That's fine. Yes. That part, oh, no, that could happen. That could happen. It's a mishmash. It's like that old Kevin Pollack joke, I thought, about arguments about uh, religion, as he would say, that really sums up his point of view, is that uh, debating religion is like arguing over who has the better imaginary girlfriend. Oh, right, right. The the idea, though, is that, uh, yeah, he's trying to be a futurist, I think is what you're saying. Like Sid Mead and uh, his work with Blade Runner, you're trying to make a projection, and it is science fiction, but you're trying to base this on... Yeah, and Arthur you know, C. Clarke actually is really good at that. Like, oh, uh, he yeah. He invented the heads-up display yeah. in fiction before it became... Re it's He's a chicken-in-the-egg situation where he's like, why don't we do this? And then it's actually in every fighter jet that's ever been built. So it's like, you know, and you can see that response to like, what are you talking about, frogs? Raining frogs, <laughs> right? You know, you know what I just saw the week or so ago is uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey, the classic, yeah. and that his combination. The book is is different, right? Uh, it's just different experience, and uh, you gotta sample both things. But with Stanley Kubrick at the helm, there's a sense that uh, you could say late '60s style. It's amazing when you watch it, though, how early it was and the quality of it, and, and what we think of as movie sci-fi. Yeah, it's vintage in a sense, but it could also be modern. That makes it, to me, timeless. Right. And some of the concepts is that you you have these, you know, what we thought moon travel would be like, and that's taking current understood science. And of course, you have to remember this 69, like that's the moon landing. Yeah. So it's around the time this stuff was really happening. But then you have a paranormal element in that some sort of non-human monolith is discovered 40 feet below the lunar surface that they they don't know what it is except that it's beaming a signal towards jupiter right what a paranormal concept yep it's exactly. not crazy like i said it's hg wells like you sir are crazy but a race of underground people the aloy and the uh the, the warlock well that yeah that, that could, could happen. happen it could happen well dreiser went into uh defense mode of his friend he actually wrote back to wells again this is from steinmeier's book yeah at best, your letter hands me a laugh. In regard to Fort's work, I am still of the opinion that such a body of ideas, notions, reports, hallucinations, anything you will, gathered from whatever sources and arranged as strangely and imaginatively is worth any mind's attention. I think it arresting, just as pure imagination as Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or your own, The Island of Dr. Moreau, is arresting. Yeah. Yeah. You, the author of The War of the Worlds, to be so sniffish and snotty over the Book of the Damned. <laughs> I love it. I love these interactions, by the no, way. No, that's it's what I was trying to, I was trying to evoke that. Yeah. 
<laughs> when we when we launched into our what we call the housekeeping section, yes, I was trying to evoke that, but it's hard to do with just a uh, and we're back. Yes, but that kind of like you, sir, are an imbecile. Your mere presence on the planet embarrasses me. <laughs> <laughs> they're poking each other. I mean, yes. these are all smart people. They're they're poking each other, but just the wording. And this and that, and that they were doing it like, you know, some uh, gentleman's club with the high back leather club chairs with the wings you could take a nap yeah. in and the, the yeah. snifter of brandy. It all kind of seems silly in a sense. Well, yeah. And Wells apparently also said he seems to be enormously ignorant of elementary science, <laughs> to which Dreiser responded, Ford is not enormously ignorant of anything. To me, no one in the world has suggested the underlying depths and mysteries and possibilities as has Ford. To me, he is simply stupendous. Oh, there you go. Dreiser is a good friend. He's he's looking yeah. out. He's got Fort's back, you know. And and we did talk about Ben Hecht. We'll talk about a little bit more towards the end of the show. Who was the um, a screenwriter and very much a fan of the Book of the Damned. Clearly, it was polarizing, and in fact, it angered some folks who thought it was too pie in the sky. Well, nevertheless, the the Book of the Damned does put Fort on the map. It's not a runaway success, but he it, it is the beginning for him. He goes on to write three more books: New Lands, Low. That's L-O, exclamation point, and Wild Talents. Uh, you can get all four in one set now on Amazon. I actually just got a first edition of Low from one of my classic book sources. I'm so excited. I have it right here. And it's so funny because, of course, I went to tell Rich Adam about mm-hmm. it because he and I are often after first editions. Although he's a, he's the true snob. He always goes for signed ones. But I can't mm-hmm. afford those. But he... Uh, and and he can't either. I don't think he gets them anyway. So anyway, he goes. He, right. He's he goes on to. Uh, I told him I was like, look, I got this copy, and it turned out it was a very identical copy he'd been looking at for a few months. Yeah. So I swooped it out from under him. <laughs> nice. That alone, just to jab him. Yeah, but it it has amazing illustrations by Alexander King that are just absolutely stunning. I'm going to take some pictures of them. I don't think I'm violating any copyright laws if I do that. I'm going to and put them on our social media because I'm okay. supposed to see them. All right, but, let me know. Um, uh, and I don't think uh, it would be a problem for you both to share it. He gets it Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and alternating Sundays. Well, this thing is a half step away from a pile of dust. I'm afraid to ship it I anywhere. It's, yeah, that's uh, true. 1931 copy. I have older books. My copy of Flatland is much older, but in better condition yeah, than this particular That's true one. from what you've shown me. But yeah. I, I wanted to make a little comment here because those of us who love bookstores. Yes. There are a handful of types of stores that I love. Bookstores, stationary stores, hardware stores, storage container type stores, <laughs> office supply stores. Why? Because they all offer so much promise. Yes. Especially bookstores. Yes. Thousands and thousands of stories. And I love how Steinmeier describes when the Book of the Dam first was put out on shelves and the display cases in the windows, how people reacted. Yeah. And generally two types, and, and you will know what type of book shopper you are. Like if you're at Bards and Noble or any that exist anymore. Some people picked it up and they read a little bit about it, flipped through the pages. They gave a wry smile and they put it back down. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Uh, well, and uh, this book is just, the low is just, it's just a beautiful book. And it's getting yeah. one of those classic spines where it has the squares and there's these icons that Kendall the illustrator did that are just crazy almost tattoo worthy honestly but yeah but this copy (laughs) I've got is crumbling I have to be very careful with it but you have those other people he described they would start to read it like oh my gosh this is really good and they would pay for it quietly and then sneak it under their jacket because they wanted to run home and devour the book yes and I think a lot of our audience is that type of person. I agree. And it's true with all all four of Fort's more prominent books, the collection I just mentioned. 
there's a lot of history behind them. And Steinmeier talks about each one of them in his book. It's too much for us to go to, into in the podcast. So if you're interested in all this, we would obviously recommend that you read Steinmeier's book on Fort because he, he really dissects the journey that each book went on, including the ones that didn't get published. So pick that up. That's Charles Fort, The Man Who Invented the Supernatural by Jim Steinmeier. We'll have a link to it in our show notes and on the page. Anyway, Fort becomes something of a legend in his own time. And this guy who later became an advertising executive, essentially he was very young when he first crossed paths with Fort's work, Tiffany Ellsworth Thayer, that who is a he, him, that discovered mm -hmm. Fort when his book New Lands came out in October of 1923. He had missed uh, the Book of the Damned. And Thayer wrote to Fort and asked him about how Ben Hecht had said in his review of the Book of the Damned, five out of six persons who will read this book will go mad, to which Fort replied in a letter of his own, according to my own researches, five out of five persons are crazy in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I also loved, didn't Hecht say, yeah, those people should go crazy yes. and go away. Yeah, exactly. Never walk near the bed. To a ghost, your ankle is your most vulnerable part. Once in bed, you're safe. He may lie around under the bed all night, but you're safe as daylight. If you still have doubts, pull the blanket over your head. F. Scott Fitzgerald, March 26, 1920. This is Baker and Bozeman. Let's get back to Scott and Forrest and the Astonishing Legends podcast. Well, Thayer turned out to be an acolyte of Ford's for quite some time, eventually moving to New York and working as a copywriter and, as I said, in advertising. He eventually meets Ford in person in 1930, and it's Thayer who convinces Ford to retitle his book that Ford had called Skyward Ho to just low, like low, that means mm -hmm. look, look. And that's what it was published as. So that was Thayer's, Tiffany Thayer's idea. Tiffany Thayer is also the one who got low published in 1931. So uh, he, was, he had some expertise in publicity. So his other idea that he came up with to help publicize or, or generate publicity for Lowe was to start a group called the Fortean Society. See, we need a society. We do need a society. We, uh, we don't have one. Well, we do. We, they, we have one on Reddit, but they don't like us. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That is uh, it's not astonishing either. It's just, yeah, it, it is astonishing in its own strange and, and uh, irritating way. <laughs> Anyway, Thayer took the term Fortean from Ben Hecht's 1920 review of the Book of the Damned. So Ben Hecht was the one who coined that word, Fortean. Mm -hmm. Now, Fort wanted no part of this if it had his name in it. He pitched back, why not start a Society of the Damned or a Stellar <laughs> Exploration Club, uh, both of which I predict now that we've mentioned them on the air will be podcast yeah. by the end of next week from somebody else. <laughs> but right. if you name it after me, he said, I don't join. Of course, that's the Groucho Marx. And I would not be... No, I would not want to join any club Yes. That would have somebody like me as a member. Exactly. So here's a, a another section or an excerpt from Steinmeier's book about this. Fort wrote to uh, his uh, a poet and his friend, Benjamin D. de Cassers, who, according to Steinmeier, once said of Fort, here Fort, as everywhere in his marvelously beautiful and brain-stimulating books, puts on the seven-league boots of intuitive apprehension. He is a man done with clumsy apparatus of thought, the wires, the pulleys, the cranks, and winches of reason, and standardized experience. Poets and seers carry the patterns of infinity in their souls. Science tags along thousands of years behind. <laughs> mm, so it's a little yeah. like poetic slam. So Fort wrote to de Cassares about this plot. He said, there was something rather awful a while ago, 
but I can't help it if I stir up freaks. I knew nothing about it until I received stationery <laughs> headed the Fortean Society. This uh, is Fort writing this. And yeah. yet the organizer of this, Thayer, is a clever fellow. You will understand him when I note that he is only 29 years old. Oh, dear me. The one consolation that you and I, who are not 29 years old, have is in thinking of those who are. Realizing that Dreiser has been roped in, Fort dashed off a letter to his old friend about Ellsworth. Fort apparently yes. refused to call Tiffany Thayer Tiffany. It bothered him, so he called him Ellsworth. That was his middle name. And he goes, right. about Ellsworth, it is this. He is a good fellow who is trying to limelight me because he first read me when he was about 20 years old and thinks he owes me a lot for it. Fort believed Thayer had gone to much trouble for nothing because such a group might be suitable for a place like Orange, New Jersey, but was not New Yorkish. <laughs> As you know, I had nothing to do with the plan, he explained. I wouldn't join it any more than I'd be an elk. That's <laughs> Fort's response. That's from page 240 yeah. of uh, Steinmeier's book. Zing. Yeah. And so then we cut to the Fortean Society. This was one of my favorite little sections that I did want to share. On January 26th, again from Steinmeier's book, 1931, a snowy evening in New York City, Charles Fort was lured out of his house by a string of telegrams. This is no small feat, by the way. He almost right. never left for anything. He followed his instructions, took the subway, and met Tiffany Thayer and Aaron Sussman at the Savoy Plaza Hotel on East 57th Street. When he arrived, he was quickly ushered up to the suite of J.D. Stern. It was only then that he realized that he'd been tricked. He was at the inaugural dinner of the Fortean Society. <laughs> also present were yeah. Theodore Dreiser, right. Ben Hecht, Burton Rasco, yeah. J. Donald Adams, and Claude Kendall. A knot of reporters had also been invited. They interviewed the assembled literati and were given copies of Lowe, just off the presses. After dinner, Tiffany Thayer stood up and outlined the goals of the new Fortean Society to promote the works and thinking of Charles Fort, discourage dogmatism, and promote skepticism. Thayer also hoped to preserve Fort's notes and papers. He admitted to the guests that Fort himself had been opposed to the society, suspecting that it would exploit him and his views. Fort registered his complaint with the name, Thayer reported, but once he had understood the broader aims, he pledged support of the Fortean Society. Well, I hope the entrees and the coffee was good. Well, apparently sense. Fort was just kind of sitting in the back, Lloyd yeah, Dobler style. Uh, he's just back there and he's like messing <laughs> with a cigar. He right. was, uh, the thing he was most excited to see was a, a printed final copy of Lowe. He hadn't seen one of those in person. So he got to see it at the dinner. He's smoking well, a cigar something. while they're all yeah. up there talking, you know, and, and I guess Tiffany Thayer's idea was like, this will be good publicity for Lowe. It'll help get sure, it out sure. there, the idea yeah, of it. Yeah, why not? And Kendall, or Claude Kendall was the publisher. So in, in my copy, it says, copyright 1931 by Claude Kendall, designed by Aaron Sussman, set up, printed, and bound by J.J. Little and Ives Company, New York, paper furnished by Perkins and Squire. You know, as we read towards the end of the book and meetings like this and the, and the fact that he rarely in later life went outside, mm -hmm. it's a sharp contrast, as we've learned, from his childhood when he had dreams of traveling the uh, world, traveling to yes. India and, uh, and China and the, the Southeast, you know, being an elephant herder and all these dreams of travel around the world and getting out there. And even, like I said, he, he wasn't a shrinking yeah. violet. I'm not even sure if that term is correct, but he he, it is. he wasn't. Yeah, okay, good. Or is it shirking? <laughs> Shrinking. Yeah, no, shirking I, violet. That's the violet that doesn't want to take the trash out. Exactly. So Robert uh, is wasn't sure there. Thanks us. for clearing yeah. that up. But I was going to say that, it, you know, it, it's different than even when he was a young man and, and was getting into journalism and wasn't even sure about the process because nobody told him. It's right. like his first assignment was to go interview uh, reverends about their Sunday sermons. Yes. 
he wasn't even given any instructions. So he spent all most of the day just going through the phone book, like, oh, that guy's a reverend. Okay, writing that right, down. Right, right, And then finally the editor's like, what are you doing? And he's like, you know, there's an index in the back of all the reverends. Yes. He's like, oh, well, thank you. That would have saved me hours. I did mention a little earlier in the show tonight, the church, which I, I can't remember if I mentioned in part one that he and yeah. Annie got married in. If you want to find it, just look up the little church around the corner. Yeah, yes. for New York City, and it comes up. Yeah, but what I was going to say is he was pretty adventurous, and then now he had a shift. As things started to change, he retreated more maybe into his own mind. Right. So to me, it's remarkable that that shift changed on a world and universal outlook. Yeah. Just thought it was fascinating as we've seen this yes, progression to his later life now. Right? Well, unfortunately, not too long after Lowe was published, he has he's actually getting kind of sick. And not doing so mm -hmm. well and being massively agoraphobic and, and probably this is speculation, having maybe social anxiety disorders. He refuses yeah. to see any doctors and his dear Annie, she tries her best to take care of him. But their regular afternoon walks to the movies, which they did pretty much every day, begin to wane. And eventually oh. she starts going by herself and he stays home. Over time, he gets more and more sick. And in May of 1932, Charles Hoyfort passed away at the age of 57. His last words were, drive them out, Dreiser, drive them out, just before midnight on that day. Uh, so yeah. uh, not sure. It probably has to do with critics, but his death came just uh, mm -hmm. one year after what is considered his most accessible novel was published. Well, Tiffany Thayer turns out to have been kind of flighty. He goes out to Hollywood to pursue an acting career. And uh, then he returns after being in one role... <laughs> something apparently yeah. to New York with plans to revive the Fortune Society in 1935, three years after Fort's death. So when Fort had died, he left all his notes, his the notes that we've been talking about that he kept in the shoeboxes and all these notes, which mm -hmm. are probably pretty compelling. He left them all to the Fortune Society that Thayer had started, but Thayer appears to have absconded with them and then also restricted access to them. And Dreiser was mad about it. Uh, here's a quote again from Steinmeier's yeah. book. At the time of his death, I was interested to see the notes that he left in order to estimate their volume in nature, he wrote to Thayer. This is from Dreiser to Tiffany Thayer. But this was blocked by your taking them and disappearing with them up to this time. I believe I wrote you for information, but received no reply. Incidentally, it strikes me as presumptuous and ungracious for the only person who seized upon his property and disappeared with it to indulge in thoughts concerning the ghoulishness of developing material in imitation of Fort. Exactly who would be mentally capable of imitating Charles Ford. Mm -hmm. And so he wrote that to Thayer after Thayer was, had reached out to Dreiser and said, look, I'm going to start the society back up and I'm going to do all this stuff. Yeah. And Dreiser was mad about it. So Dreiser knew something was up with Thayer. And when Thayer begged Dreiser to be part of the resurrected 14 society, Dreiser responded, quote, I do not care to work with you. My decision is to remove my name from the 14 society. And I hereby formally request you to do this at once, end quote. And so what Dreiser wanted was to get Fort's notes back and convince his widow, Anna, to submit a legal request to Thayer for them, asking that they be returned and pointing out, according to Jim Steinmeier, that she felt that Thayer had been treating the notes as personal property. Unfortunately, Anna, or his Annie, died on August 25th, 1937, before the matter of the notes could be resolved. Steinmeier also talks about the magazine from the Society being uh, debuting in September of 1937 as the Fortean Society magazine, which was published erratically, and also the name was changed to Doubt. But the worst part of it all was that Tiffany Thayer was co-opting Fort's legacy. His writing was awful, and it was clear that he was just an opportunist with no creative ability nor any understanding of Fort's point of view, really. 
Mm. So and here's something I want to make absolutely clear at this point. There is no relationship between 14 times still around right. and the 14 Society yeah. magazine that we're talking about that was connected to Tiffany Thayer. 14 Times is a British magazine founded by Bob Rickard, whom we're going to be talking about right, a little bit right. more shortly. That was founded back in 1973. It's an astonishing legend in itself. You can now get a digital mm. subscription, a print subscription, or a combination of both. We highly recommend it. I've got a subscription myself, and we'll have a link to it in our show notes. But you can find it pretty easily by just pointing your browser to 14times.com. That's F-O-R-T-E-A-N times.com. Uh, it's really great. So... That's like the big picture. We're really just cherry picking certain uh, significant events in his life. There's more to it than that. But we're trying to, to paint an overview of who and what Charles Fort was. And, and because like we said right, right. Uh, in our tweet for part one, without him, no us. And that's the truth. Well, in, in terms there of, would be some well, kind we would of exist, us, But I'm saying but our show would, would yeah. not be as easy to categorize as it is when it was difficult to categorize. Even when you started, we spent the whole first year, every topic going, does this fit our <laughs> astonishing legends idea? It's like, I don't know. I think right, it does. I'm not sure. Right. Because we have some things that aren't Fortean, to be sure, like historical mysteries, but most things have a, a Fortean bent to them that we cover. Yes. And I, for one, do like to delightfully befuddle people, maybe in the same way that Fort did. He, he is, there's a bit of definition, as much as he loathed definition and said it was impossible categorization perhaps is that and that's what he did earlier on in his life he loved to categorize stuff and label it and and document it and he still did it to a degree with the strange stories he came across but i think when we start whatever we're doing it is a banner of sorts that we can plant on our hill of a show and, and you know that doesn't make any sense i know no, but, I, I you like know what i'm it. saying like this is this is our this is what we're about uh, but not totally. Yeah. And talking about befuddling people, the listeners, I think, they, they want to be able to define things better with maybe our offerings. And it's like, uh, we've always said, we just find and present things. We're essentially presenters. We don't come up with any original scientific conclusions or anything other than our own personal conjecture and analysis. And that's all we're able to offer, but we like to present it because we like to share this stuff in a way that maybe Fort did. And I think that's why people are befuddled with him. It's like, well, what are you saying about these reports? Because he didn't make the stuff up. He just found right. it and he presented right. it. And then he has these crazy things like, well, what, what you're, are you joking with your analyses? And it's like, well, that's separate in a way. And so when we present our show, we always tell people, it's like, hey, it's about anything that we think is interesting. That's right. I think that's why people got upset with Ford's writing is that they found it unsatisfying in the end, maybe. Well, let's talk a little bit about the philosophy of Fort, because there's one question that's open. Whether you read Steinmeier's book or anything else about Ford, it seems like a lot of people trying to figure out whether or not he was science-minded or focused on satire or a humorist. Right. Or, and here's the funny thing. The very idea of that is about classifying him. And he doesn't want to be classified. Yeah. In fact, the fluidity of all of those things and him being parts of all of those things is probably what he wants to be. So that classification really is, yes, what's the answer? Are you a satirist? Are you a scientist? Are you a philosopher? Yes, I'm all of those things. <laughs> mm -hmm. And yeah. if you don't like it, don't read my book, you know, or don't read my work. You know, and I, satire is, you know, it's still around, it's alive and well, but back in these days, it was more of a thing. And even when I was young, 
it was a big, there was a lot of political satire. There were these performers that did. Right. And the closest thing that we've had lately to that was probably the Colbert Report before he, yeah. you know, had his own regular talk show. But he was doing a bit. He was doing a bit. And that was satire. Yeah. And so there was this question, is Fort being satirical about science or is he not? And I, th I think he just was saying what was on his mind. Right. But the other thing is that philosophically, and I want to make some observations here just from, I've, I've been with my wife almost 30 years. And for most of that time, or two-thirds of it, she's been a comedy writer. And yeah. for one-third of that time, she was a comedy writer at Saturday Night Live. And I saw these uh, circles of writers, these groups of writers that all were in that circle, and it's very competitive. And that's what I thought about when I thought about sure. Mencken and Wells and Fort and Dreiser mm -hmm. and these guys. And you, you think about the Algonquin Roundtable and just right. these, the literati <laughs> hanging out together and talking yeah. and jabbing each other and entertaining each other. And and one of the things that I noticed in the circles, and it's not just circles of writers, you know, making this observation about yeah. the, the ones that I have known and still know. It's any creative group of people. It could be a group of uh, painters. It can be a group of, uh, of masons. It could be a group of whatever. There's always folks who are like, oh, well, this person's really good at this. That person's really good at that. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that happens with cliques, and this goes back to anyone who's had cliques at high school, is like you have folks that are outsiders. They're attached to a group. But in a mm -hmm. way that, you know, one person has, like Dreiser, has brought him into this group. And then the other folks in the group, like Minkin and H.G. Wells, are like, ah, nah, he doesn't belong here. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. What's he doing here? You know, this is Pluto. But we're going to, it's still, is he yeah. a planet? He's not a planet. We got to decide. And it seemed like a lot of that was going on. And that can be hurtful. But it doesn't seem like, in the biography anyway, it doesn't seem like that was something that necessarily affected him so much. He seemed like once he figured out who he was and what he wanted to espouse, he was fine. His bigger demons were just personal interaction and maybe agoraphobia and uh, obsessive tendencies and that sort of thing. Well, that was the thing that he, I think he had the biggest battle with. For himself, when he was in his childhood, would write in many parts that we wanted to, or at least I wanted to, him yeah. for saying, I wanted to get into fights with the, with the bigger kids just for the glory of it. Right. It was the romanticism of the of the ideal of going against greater odds and succeeding and all that kind of adventurism. And that in his later life, I don't think he cared to spar intellectually with anybody. He didn't care. You know, like, what's the point? Yeah. <laughs> like at the, yeah. who has the better quip at the Algonquin round table or <laughs> Dorothy Parker really shut down that fellow. It, I don't think he cared a whit about any of that. It was more what's the bigger picture? What's going on here? And like a lot of folks who maybe study this for a long time, I think you have to be, you have to live with the question. You have yeah. to be okay with the non-answer and just like the pursuit. The thrill of the chase. The thrill of the chase. And people say like, we demand an answer from you. It's like, I, no, I don't care what you're demanding from me. I don't owe you anything. I write these books and you know, here it is, read them, don't read them, I don't care. I have a friend that's somewhat of a public figure and one of my favorite expressions this person will say is like whenever something, anything huge happens, it's a report to the internet. <laughs> and I, which I love, I love, yes, people, they demand that you, uh, you make a Report to the internet, what do you, you think about know. this? Yes, yes. We, we have to decide what we think about you by what you've stated and it's like, no. <laughs> yeah. What do I owe yeah. you? I don't. I don't care about your opinion. So it seemed to be Ford's position on this. Uh, but I will say, I think satire. I don't want to get in a social debate here, but it seems less accessible these days. That more offense 
and literalism is taken and offense gathered and it's harder to joke around. That's you see this now with comics is that we look to them to make fun of stuff, to tell us what's really going on. What is the baloney out there? And now it seems they can't do that as much. And so satire, it seems, again, there's a little bit of just a, a hardening of tone or a deafness of tone. And I don't know how he would be taken. This is what I was going to ask you. Like, how do you think he would be taken today if we didn't know anything about this? Certainly there would be, there would be, there would be reports, but what do you think about a modern writer, a modern researcher, I guess you have to ignore, you know, everything that came after him, but somebody who came out today and just presented all this stuff and had these ideas, how do you think people would react to his writing nowadays? I don't know. I guess it depends on the culture at the moment. Reading comes and goes from being in and out. You know, mm -hmm. the, there's a certain portion of the, of the population that's always open to reading. And there's the New York Times sure. bestsellers. But there is it chic to be a reader or you is your head stuck on TikTok and movies and other things mm -hmm. and you don't read so much and, and which is fine. I'm not saying one is better than the other, but I'm just saying I think it would depend on when his material would be released. And, and because it's so unusual as a writer, he's a very unusual writer. And yeah, when I think yeah. about him, when I look at Lowe is way easier to read than Book of the Damned. Book mm -hmm. of the Damned is so flowery and crazy. And when you look at Book of the Damned, and low, when you take like a combination between the two, I think of like a really unique style that's its own thing, like honestly, like Dave Eggers and mm -hmm. the heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius, mm -hmm. which is a stream of consciousness style of writing. Yeah. Very different, obviously, very different topics, but I enjoyed reading it. But my wife, who's a writer, was like, This is lazy. It's just a journal entry, <laughs> you know? So. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, and like, that's a fair assessment. Yeah. yeah, but but I did enjoy it. I I loved it. But then, or you look at like uh, Cormac McCarthy, mm -hmm. who or Faulkner, they're not following any rules. They yeah. everything you learned in high school about how to write and the elements of style, those guys don't pay attention to any of it. Right. And Fort doesn't either. Mm -hmm. so that's my point. He's not paying attention to any of it. He doesn't care really how the story's progressing. And some folks do that, and it's unreadable crap. Yeah. Right. He does it, and you still want to keep reading it. Yeah. And Cormac McCarthy does it, and you want <laughs> right. to keep reading it. Right. And Dave Eggers does it, and you want to keep reading it. And there's a, a thousand more authors, a lot of people out there who are much more well-read than I am. Our very own Tess, who uh, reads obsessively, yeah. can yeah. probably name other authors in this category. So I feel like he would be well-received, but also at this point, with all these channels of information and work coming out, it's harder and harder and harder to get noticed these days. Yeah. And I'm sure there's authors out there that are parallel to him. It may be in different categories that can't get discovered, just like there's great bands that can't get out of the right. tiny club in the small town they live in or whatever. And that's a tragedy because the way I'm getting into a whole thing about <laughs> capitalism and artistry. I understand your point. And it is, yeah. a, it is a viewpoint that has to be tempered by, are you considering this fiction or nonfiction? Right. And the writing, is the writing fiction or is it nonfiction right. and how do you present it? Because we think of nonfiction, like be clear, be concise, lay it out, tell me what's going on. Uh, also, you know, be entertaining, don't be dry, but right. just don't stop with the flowery. Yes. <laughs> just get, lay it out, lead me along, educate me, inform me. And when you have fiction, it's like, yeah, do that with a story, but entertain me. I want to... I want to soak up the words in a way that I don't get when I watch the movie version of this. You know, well, like it's yeah. just it's different. It's like you, it's a different experience. And it's like, well, what what is he delivering here? In Book of the Damned, it might be a combination of both. 
Right. Yeah, it's information, but like, man, this is kind of, you're peering through the top of his head, and it's a little murky in there. Well, the thing about all this is it, it might lead you to believe that Fort was against science, but he wasn't. And according to Bob Rickard, who I mentioned a little bit earlier, mm -hmm. the founder of 14 Times and its editor for 28 years, Fort had a compassion for scientists who were bound by beliefs. This is the point in which I'd like to read some excerpts from my 2007 copy of Chambers' Dictionary of the Unexplained, one of my favorite book titles ever. It's mm -hmm. right up there with Tobin's Spirit Guide. Yeah, of course. Uh, let me just refer to Chambers' Dictionary of the Unexplained. <laughs> mm -hmm. This excerpt actually is written by Rickard, and it's an out. He's, he didn't write the book, but it's in the, in the middle of the book, and it's a, a section written by him on Fortianism. Uh, this is from page 239. The word Fortianism is used to describe the philosophy derived by Charles Fort from his study of anomalous phenomena. Charles Fort never pretended to be a scientist and would have been the first to agree that Fortianism is not science. His was a philosophical critique of, and commentary on, scientific method as practiced between 1800 and 1931 and its attitude towards anomalies. Typical targets were the scornful opinions of famous scientists who held that such things as ball lightning, falls of frogs, or meteorites were folk myths at best. For example, the French chemist Antoine Lavoisier reported in 1772 that, quote, there are no stones in the sky, therefore stones cannot fall from the sky. End quote. Mm -hmm. Beyond 1931, the mounting work on quantum physics and the implications of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle changed the nature of the primary sciences and the philosophy of science. Consequently, some of Fort's criticisms of contemporary science and scientists have lost their relevance, but only because they and some of the anomalies he spotlighted have now been drawn into the mainstream. The things that he's saying, that Fort was saying, they're now part of what science says, oh yeah, you know what, this is okay. This weird stuff, it is happening. We're right. seeing it too. Right. Now you're not crazy. Because we see it, you're normal. That's, it's, yes. There's a little bit of that but going on. But they have to do it. They have to do it. Yes. That's right. Their way. All right, continuing on here. It is still very much the case that as the U.S. philosopher Thomas Kuhn, who lived from 1922 to 1996, observed, modern scientific research tends to be heavily politicized and practical, concerned more with normalizing data than paying attention to anomalies. However, in recent years, some open-ended research has begun to reflect a scientific worldview that differs enormously from that to which Fort was reacting. The encyclopedist William R. Corliss summarized this sea change. Quote, the entire outlook of science now is in flux. The words chaos and complexity are the current buzzwords. They betoken the formal recognition by science that nature is frequently unpredictable, complex, nonlinear, and out of equilibrium. End quote. In this context, a U.S. sociologist, Marcello Truzzi, acknowledged in 1979, anomalies are viewed not as nuisances, but as welcome discoveries that may lead to the expansion of our scientific understanding. Coming back to Rickard here, this is what Fort anticipated and what he meant by a more inclusive science. Exactly. Oh, you got to use, that's the best exactly you've ever gotten to do. Okay, right the, turn that into an <laughs> NFT, Scott, right away. Let's, and then <laughs> we'll retire right on the profits. Yeah. <laughs> now, Marcello Truzzi, you yes. just mentioned uh, one of my heroes because, uh, again, people think like, this show hates skepticism. No. <laughs> what we dislike a little bit is what Marcello Truzzi, one of the co-founders of PSYCOP, what is that, Scott? The Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. Yeah, I'll buy that. Yeah. Yes, we're talking about 
Joe Nickel, we're talking about the body of skeptics here who yeah. serve a very important function, right? But Marcello Truzzi, what he railed against was pseudo-skepticism, lazy skepticism, which is, there are no rocks in the sky, therefore meteorites. Oh, that was Lavoisier, exist. French, yes. Yeah, it's that kind of thinking where that's silly because it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. So we dismiss it. Obviously, it's silly. And then later, we come to find that science has proven that it's possible. Right. And Ford considered himself very skeptical, and the definition of his skepticism was skepticism of the science. Right. At the time. Right. Because the folks that are thinking, oh, we're only going to apply skepticism to this anomalous stuff that you guys can't prove or whatever. And Ford's point was like, both sides got the same issues here with provability. Exactly. You, yeah. can, you should be skeptical both ways. There is no good cop, bad cop here. That's what his point was that people, I think, didn't necessarily wrap their heads around. So my point here with, with pseudo-skepticism is that you're you dismiss it without fully looking into it. And that's early on, that's what Fort was talking about, in a sense, with the folly of science and that you're not fully investigating these things you outright dismiss. So how can you dismiss them? Just because right. you don't, they don't make sense to you or that sounds silly. So he considered himself early on here as an intermediate. He could be in between definitions, the impossibility of definitions and conclusions. You can resign somewhere in there. You can maybe ride the fence because you can't be on one or the other. You can say to yourself, I believe this or that, but how do you know? It's like with this paranormal stuff, like, well, that's silly. It's like, you can't prove it. It just sounds silly to you. So that's fine. You don't have to believe it, but you can't tell me that you can prove for certain that it doesn't exist because everyone's done that. And then guess what? Decades later, when science advances, you got egg on your face. We just had a comment like this on our YouTube page on a skinwalker. I was like, right. guys, just like, that's all fake. You're just trying to sell books. It's, you know, <laughs> that land sure must be valuable. It's all fake. It's like, prove that it's fake. Yeah. Prove it. Did you go there? Did you go stay there for two years? Like, and nothing happened to you? Go do that. That's the lazy part is that, that yeah. you, you all did. That's the old statement. Uh, lack of evidence is not evidence of lacking. In scene. All right. Well, let me come back here to a little <laughs> okay. more from Rickard. Mm -hmm. Many of Fort's ideas have been shown to correspond with concepts that appear within more widely recognized philosophies, e.g. his dominance resemble the paradigms of Kuhn and psychologist Carl Jung's archetypes. His extremes echo the ideals of Plato. His continuity has echoes in Taoism, and his use of doctrine of correspondences, as in the association between the local and the universal, echo aspects of Jewish mysticism. Some Fortians believe that he spontaneously discovered and applied such insights during his meditations on the data he had gathered on anomalies. Criticism of Fortianism among both Fortians and their detractors is muddied by different interpretations of the word. Some use it to mean a credulous opposite to skepticism, while others argue that it is the very epitome of skepticism. Some Fortians have restricted their interpretation of core subjects from which his examples were drawn. Other Fortians think his importance lies more in his synthesis of a number of new topics. These include UFOs, teleportation, falls of creatures and objects, the possibility of space travel and alien visitors to Earth, controlled psychical abilities, the connection between poltergeist phenomena and human agency, and unexpected associations between seemingly unconnected phenomena. Among the declared opposition to Fortianism is an unfounded prejudice based largely on misunderstanding and bigotry. Because of his unusual subject matter and initial reviews of The Book of the Damned in 1919, 
wrongly labeled Fort the arch enemy of science. Many critics of Fort in the field of science and skepticism never bothered to investigate further. In fact, Fort wrote with compassion for the very human predicament of hidebound scientists facing the threat of the new. Fort saw belief as an all-around hindrance to proper investigation, and especially to the understanding of anomalies. Predisposing beliefs were evident in many of the scientific statements, such as Lavoisier's, that he analyzed, the stronger the belief, the less it was able to adapt to new or more nearly true knowledge. His practical advice to substitute acceptance for belief until better data comes along is as applicable to scientific investigation as it is to general living. Substitute acceptance for belief. So I, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Skipping ahead to another paragraph that jumped out at me here from Rickard's uh, piece. According to Fort, the attitudes and explanations of an age are shaped by its dominance. In a previous age, religion and faith were the dominance. In our intermediate age, science and reason are the emerging dominance. Ideological conflicts arise as the old dominant is replaced with the new. Science under the old dominant tended to conform to that dominant, behaving like an institutionalized religion, with much of its discord couched in semi-religious language. Inevitably, some of its scientists behaved like a priesthood, closing ranks to defend against threats to its authority, especially from a new theory, observation, or data that challenged the prevailing dogma and found it wanting. Under this regime, anomalies were explained away rather than explained, i.e. argued from the evidence. Here's what's fascinating. I was just reading today mm -hmm. about the outcome of research from uh, one of the colliders, not the big one, but a another one that's been decommissioned since 2011. Mm -hmm. It took them this long to analyze the data from it because it had done so many collisions. Right. It concluded that the mass of this particular boson was not what was predicted, and it's against every existing theory. Mm -hmm. And the article was about that and how it wasn't predicted and how there was going to be some very strongly worded debates and conversations. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's this very point. It's like, yeah. Well, we're observing that this particle, oh, the particle's real, we found it, it but it weighs, I don't, I don't know, I'm conjecturing here, twice as much as we thought it would, or this much more, or that much more. That immediately is going to start a war of theory and philosophy in the scientific community. He's saying, all right, let's not come at it that way. Let's observe, we observed this. What does that mean? Take, let's take our beliefs away and figure out what this means. At least that's, that's what I'm thinking here. Yes, the observable doesn't care what you believe about it. That's right. It's just there. Here's another paragraph that I thought was significant. Fort characterized his anomalous data as the damned. Damned because it was rejected by scientific orthodoxy, cast out beyond the pale of acceptability, and excluded from scientific consideration. In this, he again anticipated the opinion of Thomas Kuhn that progress in science is not always a dignified progression, but often a series of vicious skirmishes between the proponents of the new and the defenders of the old, which is what I was just saying. Science has done its utmost to prevent whatever science has done, said Fort. This was inevitable. He suggested as science, like existence itself, behaved like a living organism. It would resist the new at first. Data or ideas would emerge from the conflict which were more nearly true than their predecessors, and science would then absorb them and adapt accordingly, which was exactly the point that he was making earlier about, oh, chaos is part of it. Now, mm -hmm. these quantum ideas are part of it. Quantum teleportation, like we right. talked about in the cold open. And it, this is the final paragraph I'm going to read from this. In terms of scientific rhetoric, said Fort, this manifested in the absurdity of circular reasoning. Among his many examples are fossils that are dated by the strata they are found in and strata dated by the fossils found in them. This was before the advent of carbon dating methods. 
and Newton's law of motion relating to change in the direction of a moving body, which he summarizes as, quote, if something is changed, it is changed as much as it is changed. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the fittest survive. There is no way of determining fitness except in that a thing does survive. Therefore, Darwinism says that survivors survive. Right. We talked earlier about the tautology, right? And that right. Uh, who survives the fittest? Who's the fittest? The one that survives. The one that survives. Exactly. And here again, um, Fort would have agreed with Karl Popper that every scientific statement must remain tentative forever. It may be corroborated, mm -hmm. but even corroboration is relative to other statements, which are again tentative. As Fort put it, there never was an explanation that didn't itself have to be explained. Yeah. So thank you, Mr. Rickard. It's mm, just, mm -hmm. it was perfect. This came along at the perfect time. I was glad yeah. this book was on my shelf. I mean, where does that leave us? Well, Charles Hoyfort's observations were far more complex than either most of his supporters or most of his detractors understood. In fact, his entire philosophy is antithetical to a binary concept. And frankly, that is part of what underpins Astonishing Legends as well. Fort's ideas are not on or off, black or white, red or yellow. They are both on and off, gray or orange. If you're camping firmly either in support of his ideas or firmly against them, then you're missing the point of his philosophy entirely. So, Forrest, I want to go out with this excerpt mm -hmm. from Jim Steinmeier's biography on Fort, one of the best reads we've had in a while, with a quote from Ben Hecht, a talented screenwriter in his own right, and the man who coined the term Fortean in his 1920 review of the Book of the Damned. Ben Hecht had reviewed the original Book of the Damned with an approving roar of laughter. Years after Fort's death, he was still chuckling. When he was on Earth not so long ago, he went to a lot of work establishing the three great Fortean laws. These are that man is a fool, that his soul is a swamp and a derby hat, and that his intellect is a fetus in a frock coat. I don't want to exaggerate the genius of Charles Fort. He was no philosophical comet. He was more of a roller coaster that took everybody for a ride. And for us Fortians, the sciences have never quite recovered from this frolic. For us, the lights in the skies, the strange things cast up by the sea, the things that vanish from the earth without a trace, and the presence of all sorts of goofy dust rains everywhere will always take first place over Euclid, Eddington, and even Einstein. The folly of man is to be found spread out in his writings. They are writings that should be read today. You will see that man is no nearer the truth of life than are the seashells. He only makes a little more and a little less tuneful noise. That's going to wrap up our series on our supernatural father, Charles Hoyfort. We'll be back in two weeks with a new show. Meanwhile, visit patreon.com slash astonishinglegends to access our exclusive junk drawer show that runs every week the main show is dark. It's a whole different animal. Salty, uncensored, reckless, and wonderful. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. If you're hearing this, then please know. I give permission to Astonishing Legends to use my voice. Also known as Aaron Sargent in the real world. Universe-wide. F-O-R-R-E-S-T. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. 
Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.